Zscaler extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines trained by 500 trillion daily signals to prevent ransomware and AI attacks that target business. Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI. Learn more at zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, John Maynard Keynes is one of the most famous economists of all time. Also happened to be a pretty good investor. Jason Zweig and Chuck Jaffe will be here to talk about investing lessons from Keynes and British pound at multi-century lows. That is pushing up the U.S. dollar. What does that mean for the Fed? We'll talk about that next. This is Money Beats, everything you need to know about money and the markets, and then some. Now, Financial Food Fight. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Food Fight. Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser in the studio with Jason Zweig and on the phone, Chuck Jaffe. Chuck, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. And because we have Jason and Chuck, two experts, folks, absolute experts in personal finance, we are going to do a personal finance segment today because, as he does every Friday, Jason wrote a column. And today, uh, interesting column, Jason, basically investment lessons from uh, John Maynard Keynes. Yep. So just why John Maynard Keynes? Why today? Why this column? Well, as as most of our listeners probably know, Paul Keynes uh, is one of the most important economists of the 20th century. Not not always the best beloved. Right. There are a lot of people who, who disagree with his ideas. Um, uh, and a lot of government deficits, spending gets blamed on Keynes. But what not everybody is aware of is that Keynes was – was one of the first pioneering institutional investors in uh, starting in the 1920s and continuing to manage the money for the endowment of one of the colleges at Cambridge University until he died in 1946 and he was he was innovative but what I think makes him interesting today is that he was also incredibly bold for his time or just in, in even today, his idea? Any time. Yeah. I mean, picture this. It's uh, September 1930. The U.S. stock market has dropped about 38% over the past year. And what does this man decide to do? He decides to buy, start buying U.S. stocks with both hands. And, um, you know, between the late summer of 1929 and... Um, the market bottom in 1933, if I remember right, the U.S. stock market dropped 84 percent if you count dividends and 89 percent in price wow. in price alone. Yeah, and that's exactly when Keynes was buying U.S. stocks like crazy. And there's a real lesson in that, I think, for investors of any time, which is that. Over the course of an investing career or a financial lifetime, one of the biggest steps you can take to add to your returns and your wealth is to be a patient holder of stocks throughout those periods, but be an aggressive buyer when hmm. they go down. It's a lot easier said than done, though. Yeah. Jason, I've got a question. Yep. You know, as I was reading your piece, I was thinking about this. You, of course, study history and great investors. I do the same thing. Has there ever been a truly great investor <laughs> where we say what they were known for was the way they got out of the market consistently 
and avoided trouble. We can give plenty of hero examples of, you know, this person called the crash in 87. This person went to cash before 2008. But that's not actually, hey, here's a great long-term, lifetime, beat-the-market-over-time kind of investor because they were defensive at just the right time. Is there any one of those out there? Well, there certainly are people, Chuck, who've done it once and maybe twice, um, but it's I'm coming up blank trying to think of somebody who's done it repeatedly. Um, do, do you mean essentially successfully time the market? Well, it's not even about timing the market. It's about somebody who says, you know, even if you think about like Warren Buffett's first rule of investing is don't lose money, and his second rule is, you know, pay attention to the first rule kind of thing. But you're still trying to make money, you know, part of what I took out of Jason's piece today is you're still trying to make money when the market is looking as ugly as it possibly can. Mm. And the guys who say, let's get away from the market because I don't want to suffer any losses and I can't do whatever, they effectively are not great long-term investors. They have something fabulous on their track record to point to. It's sort of like saying, you know, hey, I had that miracle season where my team won the World Series, but otherwise I was a below-average manager. It it seems to happen. I just don't know of any... Hmm. You can look at any great investor, and what do they have in common? Courage. They're buying at the times when everybody else is selling. You can't look at great investors and go, they consistently were out of the market at the times when you go, yup, that's when I'd want to be out. Yeah, and I think I think part of the problem, Chuck, is that it's human nature to say, I want to be out when the market is going down. But in fact, it's pretty easy to demonstrate that if you if you if you do have the resources to be a consistent long term saver and to periodically be adding money to the market, um, you know, market declines are not bad things. They're good for you. Um, they're not good for you at the time, but they're good for you after the fact. And um, the more the market goes down, uh, the better off you are if you're adding money along the way, assuming, of course, that it does eventually go back up. Well, I was talking to a friend of mine who retired this year, and he basically said that the reason he was able to retire this year a couple of years early was that functionally, in the middle of 2008, he just sort of said, you know, wow, this is bad. That actually makes it a good time to buy. And so he went heavier into his retirement plans and what have you. And of course, it's been paid off royally over the last eight years. So again, doing that thing that's not intuitive. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly anybody who added money to a retirement account or any other kind of account for that matter in 2008 and 2009, I mean, when you look back, that wasn't even money. That was rocket fuel. I mean, the stock the stock market has tripled uh, since then, and so you got this this massive extra like turbocharged return out of any money you added at that point. Now, of course, it is important to bear in mind two things. I think one, which is, if you're already retired, um, it's an open question whether you should be that aggressive. Right. Um, depending on how long you expect your time horizon to be and what, what needs you have for your money. Um, the second is I always worry that we don't want to encourage people to become really blasé and to say the stock market always goes up over time. It doesn't. 
Um, it can go down and it can stay down for a long, long, long time. And that's why the kinds of moves Keynes made really do take courage. No, I, I thought it was interesting, the idea that you really can't sidestep you know, downturns in the market, like bear markets. But they are the opportunity to get, you know, you know, the better returns is by, you know, charging into them and buying, um, you know, stocks at those points. Yeah, well, it's it's almost like a form of leverage, Steve, because you're if you're buying discounted assets, then when they do recover, the the whole dis- difference between what you paid and what they're later worth just goes basically goes straight to your bottom line. Uh, Investors do have to remember that the long run can be really, really, really long. I mean, you know, after the crash of 1929, um, you know, U.S. stocks didn't recover their their former price levels until 1954. So that's a long time. Now, if you were pocketing dividends along the way, you broke even a lot sooner if you picked stocks really shrewdly, as Keynes did, um, you recovered in a, in a matter of years and really prospered. Jason, what about somebody like, say, Bill O'Neill, the founder of Investors Business Daily, for those who maybe don't recognize the name, who came up with his CanSlim method? So he's a guy who's dedicated to saying, hey, when something you own falls 8%, you're out of it. But you're buying back in at other times. Does it, has there ever been sort of a system that you look at where you say, yeah, you know, here's somebody who's able to sidestep some of the danger or or do some of that stuff that again winds up with the hero sort of returns and 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 deserves the reputation of a famous investor? Well, yeah, I mean, with something like the Can Slim method, where essentially it's like an automatic stop loss, where you get sold out of a stock once it drops a certain percentage below what you paid for it, I think there's a couple problems. One, uh, it it's only going to work in general during bull markets. I mean, if the market, if if you get a severe downturn like two thousand eight and nine, or 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 the Great Crash of nineteen twenty nine. Um, you're going to get sold out of everything you own in no time. Um, the second problem with it is that if you don't do it in a retirement account, if you do it in a taxable account, you you run the risk of um, you know a lot of churn in your account, which can, depending on how the trades get implemented, can can raise your tax bill. So. If it if it can work, I think it's only going to work in a tax sheltered account because it tends to drive up turnover. And ultimately, the other thing that people have to remember is that sequence of returns is really important. You know, you talked about how long it takes to recover. The issue that somebody has is like, hey, if you've had a great run up, and you go like my friend, hey, I'm retiring now. If the next two years wind up being particularly ugly, that can change dramatically your potential to be able to, you know, live out your days with your nest egg actually working, as opposed to if you had retired two years ago, you've had two pretty good years, you're going to dramatically be helped. So sequence of returns is that one thing that people can never help, and that really, that along with longevity, probably has as much to do with the market, with with, with your success as the market does, right? Totally. Yeah. I also like the idea. Uh, just in this piece is, you know, this is a lot. You've heard this sort of this advice a lot. It's sort of, you know, 
you know, when there's blood in the street, you know, buy things like that. But it really comes down to this is fighting human nature, you know, and that's the hardest thing um, to sort of overcome is like when everyone's fearful, right, right. it's really hard not to sort of. And people are fearful for a good reason. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it's it, it reminds me, Steve, of those those stupid um, surveys and sometimes they're on risk tolerance questionnaires. Financial planners give you where they say, if the stock market falls 10 percent, will you stay put, you yeah. know, sell or buy more? I mean, it just becomes like this this kind of empty macho talk. Right. It's almost like locker room talk. I mean, it, it's kind yeah. of. You know, well, if it goes down 10 percent, of course I'll buy more. And then it actually goes down 10 percent and instead people's voice goes up an octave and they're (laughs) like, well, I guess I ought to buy a little more. And then it goes down 20 percent and they're like, wait a minute. And then it goes down 30 and they're like, well, you can buy, Paul, but (laughs) I've already lost 30 percent. Right, right. As you're crying into your beer, you know, just disconsolate. All right. uh, Ben Eisen and Chelsea Delaney just walked in the studio, so we have to cut this one off because we have another segment. More coming up, folks. Uh, the U.S. dollar rally. Is it all that it seems? That's what we're going to talk about next. Jason Zweig, thank you very much. Chuck Jackie, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, we'll be back after this important message. This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years. A lot has changed, but one thing that remains constant, including the different types of durable income in portfolios, can help investors meet their goals. With expertise across income and alternatives, Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principle is possible. Hey, this is Stephen Perlberg from the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Are you interested in the biggest changes in the media and advertising business from Facebook to Snapchat? Tune into the WSJ Media Mix podcast for interviews with some of the biggest names in media, from Gawker CEO Nick Denton to Turner President David Levy. For more, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Food Fight on a Friday in New York City. And folks, for more great podcasts, you can check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. We have a lot to offer you. We've got Your Money Matters, WSJ Opinion, Tech News Briefing, Heard on the Street, Speakeasy, Jason Gay's Free for All, and of course, the Money Beat Podcast. You can check us out on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And you can become a subscriber. We are on your Google Play Music app. We are on iTunes. We are on Stitcher and also Spotify. And let's uh, switch gears a little bit right now. We're talking about personal finance before. Let's talk a little bit about Forex. Uh, We're bringing into the studio Ben Eisen and Chelsea Delaney. Hello, both of you. How are you? Hi. Hey, Paul. How are you doing? You know what, Ben? I'm actually doing pretty well. That's great. Yeah. I am. Uh, and, you know, actually, that makes me think now you ask me, why am I good? Because I can guarantee you, Grocer, next week we are doing a Marmite segment and we're going to have Marmite in this studio. I'm, I'm very excited now. Are you? Yeah. I'm going to find it. They have to sell it somewhere in New York City. I'm going to find it. We're going to do a Marmite section segment. <laughs> I don't even know what Marmite is I, yeah, yet. I, was I just say, know it's in like, the news and it's a food stuff. And we love food stuff on the Money Beat podcast. I heard somebody saying yesterday that they used it as chapstick or something. Yeah, I don't know. It was really? very weird. <laughs> so the the Marmite thing is, I guess the problem is that the pound is plunging and Marmite is becoming expensive in the UK. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, I think Marmite's Australian, right? It's Aus- Isn't it from Australia? Oh, is it like Vegemite? Oh, no, maybe that's Which I also, Vegemite's Australia. Yeah, right? I'm not sure. I just, I think that Unilever is the company that makes yeah. Marmite, and they it's- raise the prices because the pound is so weak. Um, and some of the grocery store chains had a big problem with that. So okay. by next week we're going to have you know all what this it is? marmite. No, I don't. It's it's a yeast extract that you put on toast. Sounds sounds delicious. Really? Yes. Yeast. We were looking it up on, on Urban Dictionary, and it sounds it's a, it's like <laughs> Urban <gooey>. Dictionary. <laughs> it, no, apparently, it's <laughs> gooey. It's like it's it's a it's no, a strange spread. Americans do not like it. No American will like it. This is. I don't think we've you have to be, really You have to be it. a member of the Commonwealth uh, to like it. We. Uh, this thanks. is going to be such a good segment. Yeah, no. We're going to get all <laughs> everyone who's British who's here. We're going to get them all on next week. We're doing the Marmite segment, but Marmite is related to the pound, which is related to forex, which is related to why I have these two in the studio today. <laughs> Let's talk about what the pound has done to the dollar and and, and what this means and what it doesn't mean. Sure. Um, so the dollar has been pretty strong this month. It, just this week, it hit its highest level since March. Um, and, you know, a lot of people were sort of concerned about how that might impact the Fed, because in the past, um, a stronger dollar has hurt some other parts of the world. Like it, it puts a lot of pressure on emerging markets, puts pressure on China. Um, it can put pressure on other commodities that are priced in dollars. Um, so people were starting to wonder again if, if that was going to, um, you know, derail the plan, the Fed's plans for raising rates. Um, but what Ben and I wrote about is that, you know, a lot of the dollar strength is because the pound is so weak. Right. Um, so it's not necessarily that the dollar is this strong because people expect, you know, the Fed to raise rates. It's mostly, it's mostly a power. Right. I think that's move. the interesting thing is, uh, you know, a lot of, you heard as the, as the dollar was rallying uh, over the past two weeks, a lot of people, you know, blaming this on the Fed and the fact that everyone was expecting an interest rate increasingly to come in December. But that doesn't, like, but that doesn't seem to be the ca- as much of the case, at least, because of the basket of currencies that the dollar index is measured against. And I think that's a good point. It, it really gets back to what are you talking about when you're talking about a strengthening dollar? The dollar is the world's reserve currency. So when you think about what the dollar is strengthening against, it's kind of strengthening against everything. And there are times when the dollar strengthens against every currency, and then there's times when it doesn't, and it only strengthens against a couple currencies. Um, and and that's what people really focus on in in the rise in the dollar index. And um, what Chelsea and I had found was that really the the, the strength the the weakness in the pound is contributing disproportionately to the rise in some of these broad indexes uh, that measure the strength of the dollar. And at the same time, emerging markets um, are not as they're not contributing a lot to the dollar's rise. So in the past, where you know the Fed is signaling an interest rate increase, emerging market currencies sell off, and that. Um, makes the dollar look very strong. But at this point, emerging market currencies have been pretty stable, um, which I'm, sort of is a sign that people aren't too worried at this point. And we've sort of seen, as you know, for the past two years, this story play out again. The Fed says it's going to raise rates. The dollar strengthens. Financial turmoil sort of comes in back to the market. The Fed comes to them beating to raise rates and doesn't raise rates. Um, and I think that's one of the big, you know, sort of concerns as, you know, 
is this going to because regardless of why it's sort of rising it's rising is this going to become a disruptive factor um for the fed come december well well couldn't you play it the other way and you hear people say this too like you know when the when the you know, it's almost like the markets are doing the Fed's job for it, right? The dollar is rising. Bond yields are going up. The 10-year the yesterday, I think it was almost at 1.80. It's up from, you know, it was 1.36 over the summer. Isn't it one of those situations where, where the Fed can now sift? They don't have to. If they're worried about, you know, the economy overheating or whatever reason they want to raise rates, well, rates are going up anyhow, so it kind of gives them – doesn't it give them a little more well, leeway? But is, but is that To really, not raise it? To just I mean, sit back and let things play out? Is that out? really why the Fed's raising rates? Because the well, economy is overheating? Another, that's another good question. I mean, yeah, we, I mean, we if don't we think really about, see inflation. Yeah. No. GDP has been running the last three quarters around 1%. I sound like Paul. You do. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I think the Fed really wants to raise rates and get on to normalizing rates because – it can't hold them low forever, and if there's another recession down the road, it wants more tools in its toolbox. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, uh, this is a definitely a unique rate hiking cycle in that uh, uh, they don't really need to raise rates. There's no desire to slow down uh, any particular over-exuberance in the economy, although they are kind of uh, commercial talking real about estate. commercial real estate, yeah. so, some of the corporate borrowing maybe they're getting worried about, but still it's it's a, it's a pretty tame economy, and in that sense, um, they're really just trying to raise rates in order to get rates off of zero, um, and, and the markets will, will, you know, kind of respond to, you know, ahead of a Fed move and tighten a little bit in anticipation of a rate rise, but if you don't actually uh, lift rates, then you start to see bond yields fall back again, you start to see the dollar fall and and all of these kind of uh, 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 loosening of financial conditions. And even with the the recent strength in the dollar, it's not where it was. What what at the beginning of the year or mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean we looked at the data and it's it's like three <coughs> about three and a half percent below the highs that it saw before um, these big sell offs that we saw in, in January and, and February. Um, so it's it's not as it's definitely not as strong, and most people don't see it. Even if the Fed does raise rates in December, most people aren't expecting the same level of dollar strength um, going forward. Just because, you know, as Ben said, this is a very different tightening cycle. If we get a rate increase in December, it doesn't necessarily we're going mean we're going to continue to raise rates in in 2017. And sort of back to I mean, going back to your point, Paul about. I mean, the Fed has explicitly said, too, they do not want, you know, they, they're trying to avoid financial conditions tightening. So if you do see interest rates go up, you do have a strengthening dollar, that is going to lead to financial conditions. And that is a concern for the Fed. Yes, absolutely. So, all right, so let, let's let's wrap, put a little bow on this, wrap this all up. Uh, Chelsea and Ben, wh- where does this exactly leave the Fed? Does it make it more liable or less liable to raise rates in December? Or do we really know for sure? I mean, at this at this point, it does. At seem, least, what are people saying? That you, you know, I'm not asking you guys to opine. I'm saying, what are the folks <laughs> that you talk to saying? Most people don't seem too worried right now, just because we aren't seeing a big spillover into emerging markets, into other assets. Um, so, I mean, most people don't think that you know, just the weakness of the pound, which is you know a, a very important developed market currency, is going to prevent the the Fed from raising rates at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one thing that we were looking at was that was just what is oil doing as the dollar rises? You know, often because oil is priced in dollars, oil falls as the dollar rises. But you've had oil 
uh, rising as the dollar rises, which is really kind of, uh, uh, I think we took to be a sign that that uh, a rise in the dollar is not creating this sort of broadly tight financial conditions that, that, that uh, the Fed would find kind of restrictive enough that they wouldn't want to lift rates. So it doesn't really seem, uh, most people don't seem to think that there's going to be any impact from this on on the Fed's decision in December. All right. Sounds good to me. Sounds great to me. Ben, Chelsea, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Everyone, thank you for listening, and have a great weekend, and we will talk to you. Uh, actually, we'll pray, you'll probably hear from us over the weekend, right? They most definitely will. They most definitely will. Look out for our uh, special week ahead, which will be coming to you this weekend. Everyone, talk to you then. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Zscaler extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines trained by 500 trillion daily signals to prevent ransomware and AI attacks that target business. Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI. Learn more at zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.